Welcome to another installment of Pleasure, Use, and Virtue, a public speaking podcast available on iTunes U. This is designed for Communication 1100 and 1110, taught by Lee Pierce through the University of Georgia and South Georgia College. However, if you're not attending those classes, you are certainly welcome to listen along. Today, we will be discussing what I like to call your finishing touches. Finishing touches refer to the portions of the speech that are added on top of and also help listeners move through the main structure of the speech. Included in the finishing touches are introductions, conclusions, transitions, signposts, and other non-essential but structurally helpful words that assist you with organizing your thoughts and the reader and audience with following your train of thinking. To assist us with discussing these points, we will be making reference to two readings that are part of the course program. The first are the first two chapters of the book, They Say, I Say, which discusses introductions and the speech as entering a conversation. The second is the chapter on writing transitions, introductions, and conclusions that is either located in your course textbook or in the suggested course readings. The central idea that I will emphasize, which emerges from both of these texts, is the idea that every speech is the continuation of a pre-existing conversation. Whether you are writing an informative speech, a persuasive speech, an epideictic speech, a speech of self-introduction, or one of the many other types of speeches that are available, no speech exists in a vacuum, meaning that both the speaker, the rhetorical situation, and the audience all come packed with pre-existing notions about what your topic or argument should mean, has meant, or is going to mean. In other words, whether or not you acknowledge it, there's already a conversation happening between the research, you the speaker, your audience, and the context in which you speak. The best way to bring this out into the open and also to make sure that you're thinking through the pre-existing conditions of your presentation are to think of every speech as entering into a conversation. By conversation, I don't mean two people talking to one another, but rather a larger sort of historical, contextual, or theoretical conversation that sets the background for what you are going to discuss. For example, let's suppose that you want to give a speech on the new release of the iPhone 5. You have so many conversations to enter into. There are conversations happening about the ethics of Apple's production of the iPhone. There are conversations happening about the differences between the inventiveness of the different installments of iPhones. There are conversations happening about the evolution of cell phone and smartphone use, and a dozens of other conversations that I'm not aware of because I haven't done extensive research. Your job as the speaker is to situate yourself even briefly in one of these conversations before you move forward to show what you have to contribute. The best way to think what conversation should I enter is to think about your audience. Which conversation are they likely to already be in? Which conversation are they likely to find interesting? Which conversation holds the greatest stakes for them? As an example, let's take a conversation that I've recently become aware of, but which I think is probably less known to your audience, and that is the ethics and socioeconomic repercussions of all of this new cell phone technology. There was recently an NPR This American Life podcast which talked about how the iPhone is produced 
and all of the ramifications of the garbage and used up cell phones that people are throwing into the atmosphere and that are being broken down in third world countries. Now, this might not be a conversation that your audience is currently entered into, but as users of cell phones and part of the Western world which produces most of this garbage, this is an informative speech that they may be interested in. Your job as the speaker, therefore, is to do two things. One, situate your speech within that conversation, and two, bring the audience into that conversation as well. In other words, you can think of your speech like an a point of articulation or something that tapes together multiple other things. So in your speech, you want to bring the audience, the conversation, the speaker, and the research all to meet up in the center and keep everyone involved. Now that's a difficult task, and not everyone wants to set their sights that high. So you can also try another approach, which is to enter into a conversation that the audience already probably has participated in to some degree or another. For instance, I'm sure many of them have debated whether or not to upgrade to the iPhone 5. Now obviously, given the previous discussion, there are a lot of issues with this upgrade every two years mentality, I have to have the new phone. But you can choose to bracket that conversation in order to address another conversation. It means that you're setting your sights a little bit lower, both in terms of what you're having to tackle in your speech and in terms of what you're expecting the audience to know. But this may be a more manageable and interesting conversation for you to enter. In that case, you want to think about what your audience is probably already familiar with, which kinds of parts of the conversation they've already had, and try to add something new to the conversation. So you start by positioning yourself in that conversation and reminding the audience that this is a conversation in which they have participated and which matters to them, but then add your two cents by saying, I'm going to add something to this conversation. Of course, if you're going to add something to a conversation, you need to be doing a lot of research because you need to find out what's already commonly known and what perspectives or viewpoints have yet to be explored so that you can bring one of those to the table. If all you are doing is rehashing an old conversation in the same way, you're probably not bringing much to your audience. So remember, the goal of every speech is to introduce yourself into a conversation and help the audience join you. Of course, joining a conversation and inviting the audience to join is easier said than done. That's why I recommended, in fact required, that you read at least the first two chapters of the book They Say, I Say by Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein. It's a very slim volume, but very, very helpful for early writers. Why is it so helpful? Because it teaches you to enter the conversation by giving you templates that you can use. The templates compile tried and tested methods of introducing ideas or expressing thoughts that have already shown helpful in many, many instances of writing. To quote Graf and Birkenstein, what makes writers masters of their trade is not only their ability to express interesting thoughts, but their mastery of an inventory of basic moves that they probably picked up by reading a wide range of other accomplished writers. Less experienced writers, by contrast, are often unfamiliar with these basic moves and unsure how to make them in their own writing. This book is intended as a short, user-friendly guide to the basic moves of academic writing. One of our key premises is that these basic moves are so common that they can be represented in templates that you can use right away to structure and even generate your own writing. Instead of focusing solely on abstract principles of writing, the book offers model templates that help you put those principles directly into practice. Moving forward with the book, Graf and Birkenstein outline a number of templates 
that you will find uploaded to the ELC page for your convenience and also in the book. It doesn't do you much good just to read all of these templates and memorize them. Rather, you should understand what these templates offer in terms of themes, make sure that you are using those themes in your own writing, and then refer to the template as you need a sentence or phrase. This is what we've commonly called mimesis, borrowing the structure of someone else's work and filling it with your own content. It's not plagiarism because you're simply borrowing stylistic elements. You're not taking ideas or whole entire sentences. So as long as you're careful to just borrow pieces of structure from many different places and infuse them with your own work, you won't have to fear plagiarism. Of course, with all things, when in doubt, either paraphrase or use a verbal footnote. So what are the themes that are available to you through these templates? Well, first, you can state your own ideas as a response to others. In other words, they say, I say. This is a nice way to situate yourself in the conversation because you could say, for instance, most people, they say, that the iPhone 5 is appealing because of X, but I say the iPhone 5 is appealing according to Y. Of course, if you're trying not to make an argument because this is an informative speech, you can use phrases like, a common perspective is this, a lesser known perspective of which I'd like to make you aware is this. That makes it feel less like you're trying to be the ultimate authority and persuade people to buy the iPhone 5, and more like you're just trying to present your information for their consideration, which is what the audience expects in an informative speech. If it's more of a persuasive speech, you want to make strong declarative statements, because what an audience expects in a persuasive speech is that you are giving them a thesis statement that is true and likely to be the one correct answer. Another reason that you use the they say, I say format is because it gives your speech a so what. As Graf and Birkenstein offer, standing up and saying something like, the characters in The Sopranos are very complex, is sort of hard for the audience to process because they don't understand why you're giving this speech or why you should care. But on the other hand, if you say something like, some say that The Sopranos presents caricatures of Italian-Americans. In fact, however, the characters in the series are very complex. Then, you've at least given the audience a perspective to think about. They may not be interested in The Sopranos, they may never have watched this, but all human beings enjoy a good conversation. So certainly positioning yourself against the opinions of other people is a great strategy to keep the audience invested and make your speech feel more like a dialogue than it is just a one-way lecture. It's the same reason that teachers often use what's known as the Socratic method, which is rather than just lecturing straight from the book or from a PowerPoint, they ask the audience to participate by asking them questions. That way, the audience can show what they already know to create a conversation for the material, and then the instructor can present the material in a context that's likely to be familiar with the audience. So some more specific strategies give you different ways of responding, using templates, so on and so forth. That's the introduction. Now moving forward, I'd like to talk more about how you write an introduction using the approach of the conversation. Most people, when they write speeches, tend to write introductions that focus too much on the object. So let's suppose that you wanted to write a speech about soccer. Most early students who think that the speech is only about soccer, as in the act of kicking a ball between two feet and then trying to put it in a goal, would start a speech not by entering a conversation, but by taking for granted what the audience knows. In other words, the introduction might look something like this. So I'm sure we've all played soccer at one point in our lives. When I was a kid, I really, really loved soccer. 
but what exactly is soccer? Today I'm going to talk to you more about the practice of soccer. Now, there's a couple of problems with this introduction. It does show that the, uh, that the speaker has emotional commitment to the sport, and that's certainly important because you only want to give a speech on something that excites you. But for the audience, it falls kind of flat. Maybe they haven't thought about soccer in 10 years. Maybe they haven't cared about soccer ever in their entire lives. Maybe they're not physically athletic. Maybe they don't have the ability to do athletics such as soccer. The problem is, of course, is the speaker hasn't thought about which conversation they want to enter. Do they want to enter a conversation about soccer itself? Do they want to enter a conversation about extracurricular activities for college students? Do they want to enter a conversation about the importance for intramural activities for community building or for adults? Likely, this is the effect of not reading a lot. Because if you're doing a lot of research and doing a lot of reading, inevitably, you're going to come across a conversation that you find really interesting and that you think that you can enter your audience inside. Again, it's really important to keep in mind what the audience can process and what they're likely to find interesting. But more often than not, the way to get your audience interested in what you're talking about is to present it in a conversation which has stakes. So, thinking about our soccer speech, you might try something like this. One of the problems that college students face is that they don't have a lot of money and that the stress and the schedule of being in college can often lead to weight gain and unhealthy activities. Then, the speaker would continue to elaborate on this problem before eventually saying, however, Many people suggest that this can be combated if college students just set aside a few hours a week to participate in a fun, low-impact activity that is simultaneously social and very active. This both accomplishes the number one goal of college students, which is to be socially available, and mitigates some of the damages of college because it's not stressful studying, sitting in front of a computer, or eating. What's, the, what's one of the best ways to be able to take up this advice? soccer. Then you can write a how to start a soccer speech club or the health benefits of soccer or whatever. So notice of course that the beginning of the speech, the conversation, is not a conversation about soccer. Soccer is presented as the object that solves a problem that people are currently debating. Also, this is not a persuasive speech. Persuasive speeches, if you wanted to do that, you'd enter into a conversation with more stakes. For instance, enter into a conversation about whether or not Mitt Romney should have been chosen as the Republican nominee, identify the stakes there, and then present your argument, yes he should have or no he should not have for this reason. However, in an informative speech, the conversation is typically going to be a little more laid back, and when you make your intervention, you're not saying soccer is the number one answer to all health problems in the world, you're just submitting soccer for the audience's consideration as one possible answer to a conversation. For this reason, Problem solution patterns often tend to be very, very useful when writing your introduction, even if the body of your speech tends to follow more of a cause and effect, chronological, spatial pattern. Now, this idea of the introduction as entering a conversation is very brief. You'll find significantly more development in chapter one of They Say, I Say, which is titled, Starting with What Others Are Saying. That is another way of saying entering into the conversation. The other thing that's nice about chapter one is they flesh out more of the templates that you have available for borrowing phrases into your speech to help you do exactly that, which is start with what others are saying. They offer you templates for introducing what they say. They offer you templates for introducing standard views. 
They offer you templates for making what they say something you say. So in other words, appropriating a perspective from, that you read someplace else as your own. Templates for introducing something that's implied or assumed. Templates for introducing an ongoing debate. For keeping what they say in view. And a variety of other tasks that you're likely going to need to accomplish as you move through your speech. So be sure that you're frequently referencing the templates available in that reading and that you're always thinking of your speech as entering into a conversation. Now, having discussed in some detail the concept of your speech, especially your introduction, as entering a conversation bigger than your object and presenting your object or your topic as the solution to a particular conversation or a contribution, now we need to get more into the details of the speech. So go ahead and consult your reading on completing your speech, which will come either from the chapter in the textbook or from the recommended course readings, and we'll discuss things like your introduction, your conclusion, and parts of the speech that help connect, such as signposts, transitions, internal previews, and internal summaries. Now, one of the mistakes that early writers make is thinking that the introduction comes first. I've done this a lot of different ways, and my theory, which I think works very well, is that yes, you should definitely write an introduction because an introduction helps organize your thoughts as you try to figure out your central idea, how you're going to get the audience involved, and what the main parts of your speech are going to be. But inevitably, you should wind up dumping the original introduction because if it's the first introduction that you wrote, you probably didn't have your thoughts in order yet. So after you've got a very strong central idea and a good draft, Go back and look at that introduction again. Ask yourself, is this the right conversation I want to enter? Have I identified the best possible stakes for the audience? Have I made clear why it's important that they listen to the speech? Have I added a nice personal conversational tone to the introduction in order to warm them up slowly? Or have I hit the ground running in a way that's too confusing? Some of the strategies that will help you write your introduction once you've reached the stage where you think you're ready to finalize it are outlined in the reading. First of all, it discusses the purposes of an introduction, which by now should be clear, to draw your listener's attention to the topic, to motivate them to listen, to establish yourself as knowledgeable about the topic, to show the stakes of the topic or the conversation for the audience, to deliver your central idea, which is your overall so what, and to preview how the speech is going to move so that the audience understands what they're waiting to listen for. With regard to transitions and previews and other types of connectives, you want to think of your speech like a trip. If someone says to you, hey, get in the car with me, we're gonna take a 10 hour drive across the country, you're probably gonna have a few questions, such as, do you have a driver's license? Where are we going to stop? And more importantly, why on earth are we doing this? Other things you might want to know is what routes are you going to take? And once you get in the car, you don't want the driver to slam on the brakes and speed up. You probably want to have a little conversation. Along the way, maybe you want to stop for food or look at a few sites. The point, of course, is that comfort is always key. That was the purpose of this analogy, to transfer the tenor of comfort from the driving experience to the speech. Your audience should always be comfortable. If the audience is thinking in their head, I'm not quite clear where we are or I don't know where we're going, then it's very, very easy for them to decide that they just don't want to listen to the speech. The best way to keep your audience with you 
is not only to be enthusiastic and interesting, but also to slow down and take your time. So planning your introduction, be sure that as you're talking through your conversation, warming them up, or giving your example, you're answering all of the important questions the audience is likely to raise, which are, why should I listen to this? Why is this important? What are you trying to tell me? And what are you going to do during the speech? A lot of people think about the introduction as the attention grabber. That's true, but it's not just enough to grab attention. For instance, you wouldn't walk into a room, slam a chair against the wall, and then, be giving your, but then begin giving your speech on the benefits of breastfeeding. That wouldn't make any sense. The other problem is that students often misdirect. Misdirection happens often. What misdirection is, is a result of a student or a speaker coming up with a device to get the audience's attention that ultimately doesn't really have a lot to do with the speech. For instance, suppose that you wanted to give a speech where you ultimately tried to show the audience that one of the reasons General Lee lost the Battle of Gettysburg for the Confederate Army is because he exercised too much caution. So that's ultimately the central idea you're going to present before you continue with the body of your speech. But in the beginning, you decide that you're going to talk about all the Southern traditions that make living in the South great. Barbecue, excess freedom, the weather, culture, sports, history, etc., etc. Now, it makes sense why you would want to do this, because you're thinking about audience connection. So you're trying to connect the audience to the importance of the South in order to raise the stakes so that they have an investment in hearing about Lee's loss at Gettysburg. The problem, however, is that because you've brought up the object of the South, the audience is likely to expect that the speech is going to be about the South. So again, the intentions are correct, which is that you're trying to connect the speech to something that your audience values, but you need to do that in a way that fits the context of the speech. So if you are going to use the approach to the South, it's probably best to begin directly with the Civil War and the importance of the Battle of Gettysburg to the production of the South. That way, you're at least on track with the correct object. Of course, the more complicated your introduction, the longer it's going to take. So just be sure that you're speaking proportionately to the length of the speech. If it's a four minute speech, you probably don't want to waste more than 20 to 30 seconds before your central idea emerges and you offer the audience a preview of the body of your speech. Now, given those purposes for the introduction and the fact that you should always be entering into a conversation, what are some strategies that you can use to try to help you produce an introduction? This is where the readings are very helpful because they outline a few. I probably won't talk about those in depth because you can read about them and see examples on your own. The first, of course, are rhetorical questions versus participatory questions. I will say a little bit about this because this is something students often get wrong. A rhetorical question is a question that should be immediately obvious. In other words, it's a question you ask because it's so obvious there's no reason to actually answer it. Most questions, however, are not rhetorical questions. For instance, what does freedom mean to Americans? Or what does America mean? Might seem obvious to you, or it might be a question that people ask a lot, but to the audience, it might be actually too hard to answer. So if you're going to ask a rhetorical question, be 100% sure that the answer to the question is unbelievably obvious. If you want a really excellent example of rhetorical questions that are used effectively, watch Alan Iverson's speech about practice. 
This is a speech that really uses rhetorical questions to illustrate a point in a way that declarative statements might not have. The better solution, I think, rather than rhetorical questions, is to ask a legitimate question, not necessarily a question to the audience, but just a general research question for contemplation. So for instance, you might talk a few seconds about Gettysburg in the warm-up, and then you might say, but why did General Lee make these decisions during Gettysburg? You're not asking the audience, you're just raising the question for consideration. Pause for a moment, and then move on to consider some different perspectives, i.e. the conversation, before saying, what I'd like to present in this speech is the idea that one of Lee's primary issues with the Gettysburg Address was that he used too much caution. The other option, of course, is a participatory question. Participatory questions are also very tricky because often the audience doesn't recognize that you're asking a participatory question. Furthermore, it's really hard to come up with a question where you're likely to get a lot of participation. You have to think about the circumstance in which your audience is positioned. If it's a likely to be a very participatory group, then sure, ask a question. However, more often than not, people aren't going to be ready to answer the question, so they're probably not going to participate. So you might try a strategy like, I'd like you to think about the following thing. That gives the audience a chance to consider what you're going to say, but not force them to raise their hand when you've only been standing there talking to them for five seconds. The other option is to use participatory questions much later in the speech. Once the audience has gotten warmed up, and once you've set the precedent that this is going to be, to be a speech where people participate frequently. The final caveat I have about participatory questions is that you want to make sure that you're asking them a question that you really want them to answer, as opposed to asking them a question that has a right or wrong answer, or that they're likely not to be able to answer. So for instance, don't ask them, how many of you have ever practiced communism? Or how many of you think communism is a good idea? That's a really complicated, weird question. If you're going to use questions, remember that the sole purpose of a question is to get the audience thinking and also to get them participating. So you should give them sort of basic questions. For instance, how many of you have ever visited the Grand Canyon? Now, of course, that question works because a few people probably have, or if they haven't, they've heard of it. However, don't ask the question, how many of you have ever thought about visiting Mars? Because you're unlikely to get a few hands, and it can really throw a speaker off if you ask a question expecting someone to give you one answer, and instead you get a different answer or no answers. So again, the question should really be more about getting the audience involved and having them think about what you're talking about, rather than actually asking for an answer. Again, I don't recommend asking rhetorical or participatory questions, but I do recommend having a nice research question that you present for consideration and then you answer as you present your central idea and preview. However, if that particular strategy isn't getting the ball rolling, you can think of a few others. In addition to entering the conversation, which is the overarching purpose of every introduction, you can present a vivid description or a story. You can start with a quotation and then offer different interpretations of that quotation in order to get the audience interested. Be careful with this, though, because often people go too fast. They give the quotation and then they move on. If it's a really significant quotation, you want to take your time, explain the quotation, think about the quotation before using it as a jumping off point to present your conversation or your central idea. And you can, of course, tell a joke or a funny anecdote if that's something that you're comfortable doing. Refer to a current event, which is another way to both get the audience into the conversation and get the ball rolling. If you're talking about something that's either related to a current event or something that is, in fact, a current event. For instance, with the iPhone speech, you've got a nice current event because the iPhone 5 just came out. 
However, suppose you wanted to give a different speech, for instance, on Newt Romney's election. You could talk about another election from hundreds of years ago that had a similar kind of feel. So, a historic event or a contemporary event is a nice way to frame your speech. Your speech doesn't necessarily have to be about that event. The event can function as an illusion or an analogy. Again, any of the vases are a great way to start a speech. Analogy, story, statistic, or expert, or quote, as the reading likes to say. But just be sure you're interpreting that and you're really taking your time because it's the warm-up. So the audience basically does not know what's going on. So you need to make sure that they're very comfortable before you keep moving forward. And finally, something which the reading doesn't make clear, but which I find extremely useful, is what's known as an extended example. So for instance, if you wanted to talk about the amount of money that's spent every year on national celebrations and how that money could be put to different use, for instance, you might pick five or six different quick examples about the amount of money spent on national celebrations across the country each year. Then you just kind of give them in a nice long list. And what you're doing there is you're showing the audience the size of the issue that you're discussing before you actually jump into the conversation that you're going to have. As you are writing the introduction, don't forget to always be thinking about the conclusion. That's because the primary thing that makes a conclusion work is that it provides psychological closure. In other words, a problem, concern, or something marked by urgency, what we call an exigence in rhetorical studies, is brought up in the beginning, satisfied through the speech, and then brought finally to an ending at the very end of the speech. This gives the audience the sense that something has been opened at the beginning of a speech and that they have watched it start to close slowly over the course of the speech and then by the end the book is closed and they get a nice sense of satisfaction which reinforces the idea that they have learned something of value. If you don't open up a problem or even an issue for consideration in the introduction, if you don't start a conversation or enter a conversation, then you won't have anything to close with. For instance, go back to our previous speech about soccer. If you open up with the problem of how college students, given their schedules, are going to keep themselves from becoming unhealthy or limit their participation with others or their enjoyment of sports, then by the end, you should be able to wrap that up in a nice little bow for the audience. Now, if your speech is a little more serious and it's a persuasive speech in which you want the audience to take action, then don't wrap the problem up too soon. For instance, if you want to talk about the importance of blood and how much is needed in the introduction, and then over the course of the essay, talk to the audience about how they can donate blood, then at the end, don't say, of course, one way or another, the blood shortage will sort itself out, because then you've undone all the hard work you've done. Instead, make the audience the solution. So in other words, say something like, so remember that blood shortage we talked about in the beginning? Remember all of those people every year who die because of a lack of blood? Well now, with just a few hours a week, you can be the person that solves that problem. Again, you're offering psychological closure, but in a way that positions the audience to be the agent of change. And that is really effective for a persuasive speech. In the informative speech, it's going to be, it's going to be likely that it's less about the audience, because again, you're not trying to persuade them to take any sort of action. So most of what makes psychological closure work is that you've opened up a conversation or problem in the beginning that you're now revisiting when you get to the conclusion to give the audience a sense that the speech has come full circle. 
However, there are some sub-strategies that you can use to produce psychological closure, and typically that means revisiting the strategy that you used to open the speech. If you asked a rhetorical question, a participant question, or a research question, go back and revisit that question again. If you told a story, go back and revisit that. Perhaps in the introduction, you don't deliver the resolution to the story. Perhaps you deliver the resolution in the conclusion, and so on and so forth. Again, human beings like symmetry. It's the same reason that biologists say that we're most attracted to people with the best symmetry and the most symmetry in their features. It's because people like patterns. Look at nature, look at people's homes, look at the way people dress. We like structure and coordination. It's aesthetically pleasing. So if your speech has psychological closure and parallel structure, it's not only going to make the audience feel comfortable, it's also going to give them a sense that you've accomplished a goal. In other words, the form of your speech will reinforce the content if you pay attention to your opening and closing strategies as parallel pieces of the speech. So again, psychological closure is the key to writing a conclusion. However, I can't leave without one caveat, and that is avoid dumping in your conclusion. Your conclusion should be shorter than your introduction, and its only purposes are to signal that the speech is coming to a close, restate your central idea and main points if necessary, and of course, to provide psychological closure. In early drafts, your conclusion may have a lot more information, and that's probably because you're still trying to figure out what you're trying to say. Oftentimes, I'll read a student's speech and notice that their central idea is actually in the conclusion, not the central idea they gave at the beginning. And that's common as you develop your writing. However, you need to be very careful to make sure that the final product that the audience sees has the right central idea in the beginning, that that central idea is kept in sight throughout the duration of the speech, and that once you get to the conclusion, everything that needs to be said has already been said. Don't introduce new ideas, don't be tempted to dump, and if you do feel as if there are things that still need to be said, first ask yourself, have I already said them? And if not, go back and find out where you can say these things in the body, typically in your main points and your central idea. That's where most of the argument and persuasion and information happens in the speech, not in the conclusion. If you have to wait until the conclusion for your audience to know what your speech is about, then you have waited too long and likely already lost them. Delivery-wise, also make sure to land the ending of your speech. The last line of your speech should be very carefully crafted, and it should be one of the things that you memorize. If you have trouble ending your speeches, which is something that I often struggle with, what we call the zinger, sometimes using someone else's words is best. That's why I really enjoy always including a quote or a research question in my introduction, because then I can come back to that as the last line of the speech. For instance, if during my warm-up I introduced a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson that goes, for your nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure, because that somehow helped me enter into my conversation, and then I proceeded through the body of the speech to talk about my object and my central idea, then by the end of the speech, I would come back to my central idea, wrap it up, and then for the last sentence say, again, in Emerson's words, and either repeat the quote or give it a kind of twist. This is nice because it gives you somebody else's words to end on, but remember, they ha the, the ending has to make perfect sense to the audience, so that wouldn't be the time to introduce a new quote, but rather to revisit a previous phrase. 
If you're going to introduce a new quote by a new author or a new speaker, you just have to make sure that the quote is clearly and openly and without confusion reinforcing points that have already been clearly made. If you ever have trouble with these kinds of things, this is a nice place where you can go to one of those quote databases and just look for the right quote. Normally I discourage this, however, because research is not about finding quotes, it's about reading the development of perspectives. Stylistically though, if you do get stuck occasionally and don't know how to end with impact, it's nice to borrow someone else's words. Whatever it is you do for your conclusion, however, be sure that you land it, that you look at the audience in the eye, and that your delivery is confident and clear. Otherwise, you may waffle on the final line, and it may make the audience feel as if the whole speech, you haven't really known what you were saying. Furthermore, if you're really, really comfortable with your ending line, and at some point in the speech you get stuck, and you have to bring it in for a landing, you can smoothly transition into your closing sentence and end the speech, albeit early, but without making the audience feel as if you lost your footing. Having discussed introductions, conclusions, and of course, in many other places, main points, central ideas, and evidence, which we call the body of the speech, now it's time to go back and link your ideas together very clearly for the audience. If you followed much of the advice that I've given you about writing central ideas, main points, and previews, then one of the things you should know is that parallel structure is ultimately your best transition. In other words, write the central idea and all three main points in a way that is very, very similar so that as you say each sentence, the audience understands that you're moving through to a different part of the speech. In addition, however, you can go back and use other strategies here and there to make sure the audience knows where they are in the speech. The first, of course, are signposts. Signposts are just like highway signs. That's the metaphor there. And what they do is they mark where an audience member is in the speech. So for instance, if you say first, they know that you're on your first main point. Furthermore, they know that you're following on to something else. What's clear about signposts is you don't want to use them gratuitously or else they'll stop serving their function. For instance, if there was a stop sign at the corner of every single street, nobody would ever stop. Instead, use them where you really want to make clear to the audience that you're moving on to another part of the speech. Also, make sure in your conclusion or your last main point that you say something like finally or in summary or to close to let the audience know that you're bringing the speech in for a landing. In addition to sort of temporal signposts that talk about the structure or chronology of the speech, there are also other kinds of signposts that help signal whether you're moving from one idea to another, whether you're elaborating on a previous idea, or whether you're transitioning or translating. Words like Phrases like, in other words, mean that you're interpreting or rephrasing. Another way to say, in other words, is put differently, or to say this another way. If you want to talk about how you're elaborating, you would say things like, furthermore, in addition to, additionally, also consider. This is where the templates from they say, I say are very helpful, because they include dozens and dozens of transitions and signposts that you can litter through your speech to make sure that the audience knows where you are. The signpost should also help you as a speaker because they'll remind you that, okay, I'm on my second main point, and they'll give you some phrases to help keep flow and connection through your ideas. Ultimately, the way you connect ideas is through good writing. Sentences that connect clearly, using parallel structure, etc. But signposts can be the icing on the cake ensuring that neither you, the speaker, nor your audience ever get lost. In addition to signposts and other short kinds of transitions, 
You can also use things known as internal previews or internal summaries, sometimes also called transitions, which can be a little confusing. The key to these is to use them very sparingly. And the purpose of internal previews is to sum up what you've just said. These can be really, really effective at the end of each main point. So if your first main point is that General Lee's caution at Gettysburg was in part a problem of his own personal disdain for the Union Army, and that's your first main point, and then you go through several vases, you know, a story about Lee, an excerpt from his biography, a statistic, an expert, whoever it is that you're using, that main idea should be clear the whole time because after every vase says, you should be giving little interpretations. But if at the end you want to go back and say, therefore, all of this shows that and give an internal summary, that's great. However, be careful. Don't overuse your internal summaries and previews. You don't need to summarize every single section as its own summary because you should be able to give flow to your speech by constantly incorporating the main idea into each of your points. I worry about internal previews except for the preview statement because often people write previews instead of keeping their main points narrow. So in other words, they might say, now that I've talked about how Lee was really cautious, let's go over here and talk about the battle of blank. Those don't have any relationship to each other. You're moving from one main point to another that don't have any relationship because you were talking about the causes of Lee's caution which means your next one should be about a cause of Lee's caution and instead you're moving to a spatial pattern where you talk about a specific battle. Now obviously they do have a relationship I'm sure and by the end of the speech it should become clear but again if you lose the audience once you're never going to get them back. So my suggestion is use your internal summaries often but in terms of previews make your main points so narrow and so closely connected that you don't need a preview because the next step is logical. That said, be 100% sure that you have a very, very clear preview statement of how the speech is going to move that fleshes out your central idea and shows how your main points relate to the central idea so that the audience knows where the road trip is going to go. So in summary, you should always think of your speech as entering into a conversation. And as you do research, one of the things you're looking for is the best possible conversation for you, the content, the audience and the rhetorical situation to all engage. Once you've decided on that conversation, it should help formulate your research question and help you decide what evidence you're going to look at, which main points you're going to write, and which central idea you're going to put together. Once all of that is in pretty good shape, then you start to put the speech together for the audience because now you know what you're trying to say. That begins with the body of your speech, although you may write a sample or tentative introduction just to get the ball rolling. But after you've organized the body of your speech, have a clear central idea, and have identified good main points with strong supporting bases, then plan an introduction that will take your listeners from their various internal worlds and move them into the world of your speech, to quote the reading from Jaffe. In other words, put the audience into a conversation that they're likely to find important, and then show how your speech is going to contribute to that conversation and therefore to their knowledge base. You can do this by a variety of strategies, but whatever you do, be sure that your introduction gains attention, relates a topic to their concerns, enters into a conversation, establishes your credibility, presents the central idea, in other words, the main overarching so what organizing claim that the audience is supposed to take away from the speech, and of course, include a strong preview of your main points. 
Once your introduction is concluded, plan a conclusion that provides a transition from the body back to the problematic that you opened the speech with. In other words, write a conclusion that signals psychological closure by restating your central idea, recapping your main points if necessary, and revisiting the conversation to provide the audience with a sense of closure. Throughout your speech, litter across connectives to link your points, and of course, signposts that help you, the speaker, and your audience all understand where the speech is going, where the speech is, and where the speech has been. Thank you for listening to this podcast entitled Finishing Touches, which is an installment of the Pleasure, Use, and Virtue public speaking podcast available on iTunes and designed for students in my communication 1100 and 1110 courses. The podcasts are designed to supplement the readings but not to replace them and are available for use by anyone inside or outside the course. Further podcasts are available on my iTunes channel under the podcast Pleasure, Use, and Virtue, a public speaking podcast through iTunes U. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, please feel free to leave them in iTunes or contact me, Lee Pierce, at Lee M. Pierce, that's L-E-E, -E, M as in Marie, P-I-E-R-C-E, at gmail.com. As always, public speaking is a very difficult task but an absolutely crucial one to the way that we build relationships, imaginaries, collectives, and futures. So you should be proud of yourself for engaging in such an important and challenging task. I hope that these podcasts continue to encourage and support your development in that direction.